The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open to Ephesians chapter 5. And today we'll take a break from our study of the seven churches in Revelation to preach a special message relating to the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, for many weeks leading up to this holiday, we've dealt with multiple negative issues. Uh, the Revelation series is about the warnings of Christ against churches in the first century that had compromised the truth. And those warnings are equally valid today, and they are intended to correct churches in all ages until Christ comes to take the church out of the world. And since churches have, of our time have joined with the culture, then we could expect that chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation would be especially hard on us in their assessment of the commitment that we as Christians today have given to Christ. Now, the churches in Revelation lived in a time of terrible persecution, and yet there's something we notice about that as we study each of those churches, that the Lord offers them no excuses. He, he didn't need to. He didn't need to offer an excuse in times of persecution and terrible trials that come upon us, because every one of God's people and every one of His churches has the power of the Holy Spirit in us, and we are enabled to live according to the Word of God and the way that God would have us to, and we can, we can face every obstacle that there is. The power to do it is not ours. It doesn't come from positive attitudes. It comes from a power that is unearthly. It comes from God through His Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit of Christ who strengthens us as Christ was strengthened when he faced Satan in every temptation. In this passage of Ephesians 5, there is a text that I, it is a text that I believe fairly summarizes why in these challenging times that we can give thanks. And we do it because Thanksgiving is a Trinitarian experience. And I mean to say by that, that the entire power, all of the power of the Godhead works on your side. If you're a Christian, everything that God is is at work at this very moment for your on your behalf. The almighty trinitarian God in all of his being works to bring all of his children to glory, and every step that we take in this life is a step towards heaven because when we're saved, he sets our feet on a pathway of righteousness and every step that we take is ordained for our good. The psalmist said, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, if you look at our text in Ephesians 5, uh, we begin reading with verse number 9. And this is a little bit of a, a strange beginning point, because it's a parenthetical phrase referring to the verse before it. And so let me just give you the gist of verse 8 and summarize the beginning of this chapter. And we'll see it again in just a moment, but we notice that Paul said that you have something to give thanks for. And this is before we even get into the text that I want to read today. You need to give thanks because once you were lost, you were in darkness, 
In verses 3 through 5 are listed some of the sins of the darkness. And darkness in the Scriptures means to be in a terrible place. Darkness is the place of sin and death and hell. It stands for spiritual blindness and separation from God. And you were once that way. Before you became a Christian, you were headed off a cliff of destruction. You were blind to the next step that you would take. You didn't know that that next step could plunge you into the pit of hell. But then one day, the Holy Spirit of God came and He opened up your eyes. And He showed you the light of the gospel. And now you see what others can't see. You see what's impossible for others to see because there's no one who can see the gospel of Jesus Christ and the light of Jesus Christ without the operation of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. And God uses the Word to open your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. And because you have been made to see, you ought not to stumble any longer as if you're still in the dark. You ought not to get into sin you're not to act as if you don't understand who you are and what's happened to you and the consequences of disobedience. But rather, the Word of God says you are now a child of the light and you are to walk in the light. Now that summarizes what Paul wants to tell us in the first part of this chapter. Now we'll start with verse number 9. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 20 is our text verse. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always for all things. That's a verse that's very easy to read but very hard to do. Many found it very hard to do this past month when our county was ravaged with wildfires. How do we give thanks when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? But yet we have the command here, and it's very clear to us, to give thanks in all things. But when Paul wrote that, surely he didn't understand that I've lost my house, and surely he didn't understand that my workplace is gone and I don't have a job. And surely he didn't understand my health issues and what I go through every day, the pains that are in my back and rest of my body. Surely he doesn't understand that. Surely Paul didn't know about teenage kids that I have and they have driver's licenses and they're driving two-ton cars. And surely he didn't know. I've still got to tell them to wash behind their ears. 
And surely Paul didn't know that my house payments are late. And he didn't know that my car is broken down. He didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't know everything that I go through. So how can he say this? And he must not mean this to give thanks to God in all things. And yet, reading Paul, reading what he said and understanding his life, yes, he did know. Take some time to read what Paul went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see if you can figure it out. How could he write, give thanks in all things? Read Philippians, which is a letter that he wrote from prison, and figure, how does he say to give thanks for all things? And then read 1 Corinthians 15.32, where Paul speaks of being thrown into an arena with wild animals, and then yet he says, give thanks to God for all things. And so there must be something more to this, to giving thanks, than first meets the eye. Paul must know something that I don't know. There must be something that's, that's bigger than all the bad things that happened to me in my life. Else why would Paul say, give thanks? And indeed there is something. There is God. There is God. God who is perfect in righteousness, almighty in power, gracious and benevolent in His mercy. There is God who is love. There is God who is our Father. God who is our brother. God who is our confidant. God who is our Redeemer. And God who is our closest friend. And so what is the ultimate solution to this command that we are to give thanks in all things? And I think the solution to it is to recognize the difference between God and me. To see that God and me, we're not alike. I have nothing. I deserve nothing. And it's to recognize that I'm spiritually dead and only God is alive. And if I have nothing, if I have nothing, and I get something, if I get anything, then I have reason for thanks. Well, Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian concept. The first Thanksgiving in America was not thanks for good luck. After the First harvest in 1621, the pilgrims called for a feast of celebration for the food that they ate and for all the hardships that they had survived. Remarkably, a few years ago, there was a new public school textbook that came out that said the pilgrims threw a feast of thanksgiving or they gave a party for the Indians because they helped them to plant and harvest their crops. So they thanked the Indians for their friendship and their goodwill. Well, no, that's not why. The pilgrims were deeply God-fearing people and they understood the theology of grace. That everything that we have is by the providential bestowment of God's grace. That we don't survive by human ingenuity. We survive by God's grace. Even the atheists, the agnostic, and the God-haters will not lift a fork to their mouths unless it is by God's grace. And we call that common grace. That's a grace that goes out to all people. That's the grace by which all people survive. There is a common grace which God uses to bless the entire world with the food that we eat, the air that we breathe, just the ability that we have to do what we do that comes to us by God's common grace. But yet there's still another grace. There's a greater grace. There's a grace that is uncommon. And that is the grace that is uniquely Christian. Now there is no other religion that understands grace in the way that we do. And there are many people who say they're Christians that never really understood grace. 
They still believe that there is some way that they can earn God's grace. That in some way they deserve God's grace. That God must do this for me. We spend more time depending, uh, defending the truth of God's sovereign grace against Christians than we do against heathens. But it's only when you understand who you are and what you truly deserve that you will thank God in all things. And so thanksgiving distills into this one basic concept, it's humility. Thanksgiving is understanding that God does everything for His people and all is for their good. And this is what the Apostle of Grace said in Romans 8.28. He said, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to God's purpose. So everything that happens to you, you may not understand it, but everything that happens to you is for your good. Wildfires, lost jobs, lost homes, a bad back, cancer, even teenagers. It all has a purpose of God working for your good. Well, giving thanks, then, is the, is the ultimate worship because it shows that we trust God in everything. That you trust Him above the hopelessness of every tragic event. You trust Him that the things that you don't understand now, all those things that you account as bad, you put on the bad side of the ledger, all the bad things that, that happen to you, you trust Him, you account that all those things are also going to be for your benefit in the future. So you trust Him that He knows the end from the beginning, that God knows exactly what He's doing with your life. As James said in Acts 15, 18, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Do you understand what He means? What He says? What, what that's about? Not one event, no event can happen that is not God's work. There is nothing that is outside God's sovereign plan. So Thanksgiving says that you trust God to control it all. Even though you don't understand it, even though it doesn't look good at the time, you trust God to handle it all because God never makes a mistake. As Abraham said, shall not the judge of the earth do right? Of course he will do right. And I love to hear people in our church who say that they have a new understanding of God's sovereign grace, that that, that grace, knowing what it is, has changed their outlook on life. And I've told you many times that the understanding of God's sovereignty will give you a different world view because it instills in you a confidence that you never need to worry about anything. Every outcome is right because it's God's plan and purpose from the beginning of the world. It must be right. And so if I'm content to leave all these things there, then what do I need to fear? What do I need to be anxious about? What do I need to worry about? What is it all that about? If I trust God, then I know that He does all things well. But I have to tell you that I don't understand everything about God. And I'm sure that you don't understand everything about God. I don't know why God works the way that He does. At least in the minutia, I don't understand it. I don't know it. But then I don't need to understand it. I don't need to figure all of these things out. Now, sadly, there are some people who think they have to know the why of everything. They have to have an answer to everything that takes place. And I'm telling you that with an infinite God, it is impossible to know everything that God does. You don't know. You can't know. And God doesn't want you to know or else He would have told you. And this is what trust is all about. This is what faith is all about, that we trust God that He's going to do what's right. 
So I only need to do what God says. I only need to walk in the light and trust God for every step that I take. And there are times that I trip and I miss a step, but I trust God that He says, as we read in the Psalms, though I stumble, I will not be cast down. Now folks, that's my introduction. You need to know who you are. You need to know who God is before you can obey verse number 20. Paul said in Romans 1.21, if you don't know who God is, then you won't be thankful. So, I believe if you have trouble being thankful in all things, then you don't yet know who God is. So our subject today is Trinitarian Thanksgiving. And this passage shows that the Godhead, the entire Godhead, draws out thankfulness because God in all that He is, all that He is in His being, puts everything that He is into the blessing and the comfort of His children. So let me show you how the Trinity is in our thankfulness or how we should be thankful to the entire Trinity of God. Now first, thanksgiving exalts the Father. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. Giving thanks says that we know that God is our Father. Paul said in Acts 17.25 that God gives to all life and breath and all things. But why do we give thanks to the Father? Well, first we give thanks because we are gifted by God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In 1 Corinthians, in another verse, Paul wrote, What do you have that you didn't receive? And so both Paul and James agree with this, that God gifts us. Everything that we have is a gift from God. There is no such thing as a self-made man. We don't have bragging rights for any accomplishments. There's none of you that keeps his own heart beating. There's none of you that goes to sleep with the ability to keep your lungs working so that you can breathe the next breath. There's none of you that controls the chemical processes that break down the nutrients of your food and distribute it to the different parts of your body. There's none of you that has power over you. That is, you have no power over the processes of your body, so much less do you have power over the processes that are outside of your body. If you can't control what goes on in you, you certainly can't control what goes on everywhere else. You can't make crops grow. You can't cause the sun to shine. And the Scripture says it's God that gives you the power to get wealth. And so your ability to work, the job that you have, your ability to make money is solely in the hands of God. You have power over none of this, and yet you need all of it before you get up and go to work and live your life. Somebody has to take care of all of that for you. And the Father is that source of life. It comes down from above. Now, not only physical life, but most importantly, spiritual life comes from the Father. And of course, you must have the physical life first before you have the spiritual life. But God gave you your physical life for this purpose, and that is to bring you to the recognition that your physical life must be used for Him. Now, if you'll look back in... Uh, chapter 1 at verse number 3. This is the beginning of a marvelous section of the eternal purpose of God the Father. 
And in verse number 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Scripture says, Blessed be God, the God and Father. Now to bless God is to glorify Him. This verse begins a long section going down to verse 12 that speaks of the eternal plan of redemption. It started before God created the world when the Father and the Son entered into an agreement that the ones that God chose would be claimed and redeemed by the Son. And so before you were born, the Bible teaches that God planned your life. And I want you to think very carefully about that because what I'm, I'm talking now to believers in Jesus Christ. That in God's sovereign will, you were chosen for salvation, and that determination by God is undeniable, it's unmistakable in this passage and many others. And since God's plan is for those that He would save, then what could be the object of that plan except this? It can only be this, that God would have a people that would forever glorify Him and trust Him and be with Him forever. They will thank Him by giving them Him their trust, their service, and their love. Now, I know there's some who say that can't be true, that God can't determine these things before we're born. God doesn't do that because God's not going to interfere with anybody's free will. But do you think that God created you to give you free will to reject Him or to change your will to glorify Him? Which of those objects is greater? That your will would be honored or that God's will would be honored. Now, God's plan is to get you to heaven where you'll always glorify Him. And so you see, it's this eternal plan that's in view, and that can't be upset because the finite can't understand how God's eternal plan works. Now, the will of the creature can never interfere with that eternal, infinite plan. So God gifts us for this purpose... And then he gives us all other spiritual gifts in this life that begin that sanctifying process for heaven. So we begin our sanctification here to end in our glorification in heaven. And so can you give thanks to God the Father who made a plan that despite the frequent failures that you go through in your life, that despite the times that you are unfaithful to him, despite the times that you save and you dishonor him, can you thank God for a plan who says or makes it possible that you will not be cast down because of those things that you do? So thanks for that will never be complete. Give thanks always because you're never going to catch up to the measure of God's goodness to you. Secondly, and perhaps more practically, we exalt the Father in thanksgiving because we are gifted to give. God's children are made in His image. And He wants children that walk in His footsteps and that bear the image of His character. He is a generous, giving God. And when we give to others, that glorifies Him. Now, it's God who puts that into our hearts. We're naturally selfish people. But we're giving people when God works in our hearts. People get from you because you got from God. You see, you had nothing to give. And so anything that people get from you, they also got from God. And so when you're faithful to give, that shows God, doesn't it? He's the one who ultimately gives. Now, I hope the concept is understandable that when you're selfish, that reflects badly on the Father. And when you sacrifice, it speaks well of Him. 
And we always need to think that every action that we take, in some way, that's going to reflect upon our Heavenly Father. Just as what your children do often reflect on you, so do our actions as God's children reflect on Him. And so when children act badly, it's often a reflection of bad parenting. Now, understand, though, that bad parenting is never God's problem because God has perfect rules and God never misses the mark. And in His case, it's never God who makes the mistake. It's always the child that makes the mistake. And so when He chastises us, it, it's not because He did something wrong, but because of our unfaithfulness. Because we haven't done what we should do. It's our failure that's the cause, not God's. He can never be a bad parent. So when a child has a parent who supplies every need, a parent that loves him unconditionally, that always seeks his best welfare, then what do we say about that child when he misbehaves? Well, we say that is a very ungrateful child. A grateful child thanks his father. He, in turn, reflects his father's benevolence by being kind and gracious to others. A grateful child is not a spoiled brat. He's kind and compassionate as his father is loving and benevolent. God gifts us so that we can return in kind. Now, since we can't do anything to God, for God to enrich him, we can't increase God in any way, God then teaches us to redirect our gratefulness by giving to others. So that's our gratefulness to God. When we give to others, we're showing we appreciate what God has done for us. So thankfulness exalts the Father. Now secondly, thankfulness exalts the Son. Thanks to God is given through Jesus Christ. So what does thankfulness to Him do? Well, it shows that we understand the way that we approach God. That thanksgiving is worship. That thanksgiving is a form of prayer. Do you remember the Acts acrostic? A-C-T-S. you remember what the T stands for? That is for thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is a part of proper prayer. How do you pray to the Father? Well, a proper prayer only goes one way. It must go through Jesus Christ. There is no way to approach God the Father except we come through Jesus Christ. Now, in the study of Paul's letters we learn that nearly every line reveals doctrine. In our study of Romans on Wednesday evenings, we've seen that every verse discovers a doctrine or, or in some way a doctrine is inferred. And here in Ephesians 5.20, Paul assumes that we already know why he says to give thanks to the Father through Jesus Christ. Why should we do it? Well, he would take us back to Jesus' teachings on the subject, that you can't get to the Father if you try to go around Him. That the path to the Father leads straight through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And so, here is acknowledged that the Son is essential in thanksgiving. And I dare say there will be many prayers that will be offered on Thursday on thanksgiving, and they won't mention Christ. No one will say anything about Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that I despise prosperity preaching is the absence of Christ. Joel Osteen wrote an entire book about the prosperous life, and he left Christ out of it. The gospel of Christ didn't appear until a note in the appendix, and even then it wasn't the full gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But why do we give thanks to the Son? Well, we exalt Him for His willingness to implement the Father's plan. The Father is the architect of redemption, and the Son is the builder of it. It's the Son who took that blueprint of salvation and then put it into effect. And He deserves endless thanks because at infinite personal expense, He gave us salvation. Now let me give you three thoughts about thanking the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we thank Him for our new nature. Each of us was born with a depraved, sinful nature. The Father chose in eternity, but that choice is not salvation. It leads to salvation. It's part of the blueprint of salvation. But that choice is not the entire plan. You see, we were, we were lost. We were hopelessly dead in sin. There was nothing we could do that would please God. If you look in chapter 2, you see a description that paints a picture of what you were before you came to Christ. It says in verse 2, Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. God chose people that were children of wrath. That tells us that the chosen were in the same condition as those in the same, with the same nature at birth as all others. And so there's a problem here. That nature that we have will not take us into heaven. No matter what you do, you're not going to get into heaven with that nature. There are two verses that spell out this problem. There are more, but here are two. Matthew fifteen nineteen. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. How are you going to get to heaven with a heart like that? Revelation 21 says that people with this kind of a heart are shut out of heaven. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the old nature that you were born with. So you see the contrast? This old nature won't cut it. And so that old nature has to be replaced. And in Christ, we receive a new nature. Can you get around Christ to get to the Father? Well, here's your answer. What are you going to do with your nature? What are you going to do about it? How's that going to let you into heaven? And this is the very reason that Christianity is exclusive. There is no such thing as an interfaith salvation. All without Christ, without exception, will be in hell. The nature is the problem. And that nature must be replaced. I'll thank the Son that by trusting in Him, you get a new nature that will admit you into the presence of the Father. Next, thank Him for a new family. Ephesians 2 shows that you were born into the wrong family. Some of you have family members that you are sure were born into the wrong family. But the truth is, all of us were born into the wrong family. The common lie that's told by all who have no spiritual understanding, is that we are all the children of God. Have you heard that? Did you know that? 
that we are all the children of God? Well, no, we're not all the children of God. Now, if you'll pardon my language, uh, we were discussing this in the Romans class a few weeks ago, and I asked the class, is everybody a child of God? And I'm not sure that I heard correctly, but I believe that Jorge immediately answered the question, hell no. (laughs) And I think that I understood what he meant, hopefully. That's what you call verbal shorthand. Some are the children of hell. Now, we've just read that, haven't we? We were the children of disobedience. That doesn't sound like children of God. We've got to be changed to get into the family of God. And who are these children of God? Well, Galatians 3.26 tells us, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So that sounds crystal clear, that none without faith in Christ is a child of God. So that shoots down the possibility for anybody that's an unbeliever. All those people that tell you that they're not Christians, but they say, I'm a spiritual person. Well, yes, yes, they are spiritual people. That's true. But they're spiritual people that are on the way to hell. And that's because they're in the wrong family. So everybody needs a change into a new family. And in the new birth, you are born into a new family with new brothers and sisters. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I'm thankful that every time I come to church, I get to visit with my new family. In a few minutes, I'll sit down to a meal with my new family. And not all of them do what they should do, but there aren't any bad apples in that family. Last month during the fires, we got a renewed perspective of family, I think. Those fires were a disaster physically. But for a church like ours and many other churches who went through this, and especially those that had members that had to live through it, it was very spiritually uplifting to see what families and churches would do for each other. In our church, there was a a large outpouring of compassion and help for other people. There There was just the love and concern that was shown for others. And that's what you get in this family. If you needed something, then this family was there for you. Now, thank the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he did at the cross to bring us into this new family. Thirdly, we thank him for a new home. And did the fires teach us a great spiritual lesson about our homes? As I told you when I returned, I I never realized that I loved my home as much as I did. Uh, I returned, uh, I, I was gone the week of the fire, so I didn't get to see what most of you saw. And when I came home and saw that my house was still standing, that was just a wonderful feeling that God had blessed me with my home. But had my house been raised by the fire, I know that I have something far better. There's a house that's been built for me that will never be lost. The descriptions of it are some of the most fascinating parts of the Bible. If you read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you read about heaven, the new Jerusalem of heaven and It's an outstanding, astounding place. We understand very little of it because our minds can't comprehend it. But we do know this, that what we do know, what has been shown to us, has caused us to yearn for it, yearn for it in happiness. And that promise 
That promise of a home is for those that trust in Christ. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation, that is our life, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can speak of citizenship in heaven but those who look for the Savior? Now, many of you in Sonoma, here living in Sonoma County, you've experienced the hardship of trying to find a place to live. Uh, Finding housing in Sonoma County is very, very difficult. You need a boatload of money for a down payment. Then you need a barge full to complete the purchase. But for every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ, we have an exceedingly better home that has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is this a Trinitarian promise? Well, listen to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Is there a need to worry and complain about where we live? Do you understand that everything here is temporary housing we've already got a home that's reserved in heaven your name is written on that mailbox your change of address has already been filled out and Ephesians 1 says that the paperwork for it was done before the foundation of the world what your home needs is an occupant it's already assigned there is no waiting list for it you just show up don't ask me how you show up, but uh, I think you maybe understand that already. You show up, and there's no hassle for it. It's yours, and you don't even need a key because nobody needs to lock anything up there. This is an inheritance for everyone who is in Christ. And then finally, this, this final link that makes Thanksgiving Trinitarian is thankfulness exalts the Spirit. Now, as we've read this passage, and as we've talked about the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is always in the place where the Holy Spirit is when there are discussions about the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit remains in the background of the passage. But I don't need to invent a place for Him. He is equally God. In verse 9, Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 18, he speaks of the filling of the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit works in you, there's never a blast from a trumpet that announces His presence. He's not out front. He's not looking for exaltation, but He works to exalt Christ. It's what Christ did that the Holy Spirit brings to the forefront and makes known and visible to the world. Now, how do we thank the Holy Spirit then? Well, we thank Him for regeneration because that's the initial work that begins the recognition of a sinful condition and the need for repentance and faith. And I thank God that that work is a secret, effectual work. I thank Him because He came to me and He changed a resistant heart and made it to a willing heart. And I thank Him because He knows my stubborn will. And He knows if I'm left to myself that I would never choose Christ. There are some that are deluded into thinking that they would. 
But all the free will in the world has never caused a person to choose Christ. Instead, all the means that are necessary to fulfill the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son have been guaranteed by the Spirit's effectual work. The chosen come because the Holy Spirit works in them to come. And this is the reason that one day someone gave you the gospel. This is the reason that a preacher or a friend or your parents or you heard it on a radio program or someone handed you the Bible. Some way you got the gospel and that was in the providential plan of God and the Holy Spirit working through that to bring you to Him. And so it was then when you received that that the Holy Spirit flipped on the switch. And you didn't do it. You resisted the truth. Do you remember what we read back in... in Ephesians 2, that you were children of disobedience, you were always resisting the truth. And if you now say, no, that was me. No, I did that. I'm pretty smart, you know. I've got a good head on my shoulders. Well, if that's what you think, then who are you going to thank? Will you thank God or will you thank you? You see, our doctrine of the sovereign God is the only interpretation of Scripture that gives all glory to God. It leaves no room for anyone to boast. Spurgeon said that it lays man in the dust. So if you want to exalt God, that's where you've got to stay. You've got to stay in the dust. And understand that none of this stuff is about you. This is all about God. There are two ways that I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit and His regenerating work. First, I'm thankful and I give thanks for His indwelling. His indwelling. I've got to take you away from this passage to explain this. But I don't want you to be confused. In verse number 18, there is a command to be filled with the Spirit. But we are never commanded to be indwelled by the Spirit. And why is this? Well, it's because there isn't any human action that can be taken for it. When you trust Christ, this is one of the grand benefits of it. You don't need to apply for this because it's automatic. The Spirit comes to inhabit your soul, and He lives in you. You don't pray for this. You don't beg for this. You don't ask Him for this. He comes. And that's a part of your salvation. In fact, if He didn't do it, you wouldn't have any power in you to keep you safe and secure in salvation. As soon as you were saved, you would lose it. Because you wouldn't have the Spirit in you to keep you. And neither would you know at any time that you were saved, except the Spirit is in you. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. But what man knoweth the things of a man, save or except for the Spirit of a man that's in him? Even so, things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that ye might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So right in those verses, it tells you, you can know that God is your Father, and you can know that Jesus is your brother, and you can have all the benefits of salvation, and you can know about the new nature that He's given you, you can know about the new family that He provides for you, you can know about the new home that He has prepared for you, because the Holy Spirit is there in you to make it known. Those without the Spirit know none of these things. They don't think about any of these things because they don't have any of these things. But you have them because of God the Father and God the Son. And you know them because of the Holy Spirit of God. And then finally, 
We give thanks for the Spirit's infilling. This is in verse number 18, and this is a command. Indwelling is not a command, but infilling is. You are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, just very briefly on this topic, the infilling of the Spirit is measured by how you yield yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you make no mistake about this. He is always Lord, but you need to recognize the command to obey Him as Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the filling of the Spirit. As you're more and more filled with Him through obedience to His Lordship, then more and more fruit is produced. Now, my sermon is not about that fruit, so if you want to know more about it, you need to read Galatians 5, 22, and 25, and that will give you a better picture of fruit. But I will say that the fruit of the Spirit is God-honoring, it is God-glorifying, it's the Spirit of thanksgiving that is worked in you by the grace of God. So I'm thankful that we are a church of God the Father, and a church of God the Son, a church of God the Holy Spirit. And because we know God in His fullness, I know that I can praise Him and thank Him in all things. Do you believe that? I'm a Christian who can say, nothing bad happens to me. You might not think so. The world might not think so. And there are times that I don't think so. But I know that it's true. I might not always perceive the goodness of God. And you won't always know it right away. You won't know what happens now in the immediate, how that is working for your good. But by your declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, you must believe it. Because God said it. It has to be true if God said it. And so I know that God always works for my good. So I want to be thankful in all things. I'm thankful because I'm chosen, I am redeemed, I am sanctified, and one of these days I'm going to be glorified. I understand God is good, that God is too good for me to be ungrateful. So today, I encourage you to sit down, have a family meal, celebrate Trinitarian Thanksgiving. We are blessed because we have God the Father. And we have God the Son. And we have God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead working to infinite ability to bring all of His children home to heaven where they will be with Him. He gives us all things, life and breath and all things to enjoy. Let's give thanks to God. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. Turning it over to God, trusting Him for all things. Give thanks to God in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for so many good works that you do. We can't even sit and count all the things that are done, all the things that you will do, all the blessings that you have promised. We can't even number them all. But we thank you, Lord, that we do know you. And here, now, in this church building, we can start to mention, talk about things that you've done for us and know, Lord, that you are the gracious God that supplies every need that we have. We thank you for that. Bless your people today, the fellowship that we'll have in just a few minutes. And if what I've said, Lord, hopefully resonates with someone today who isn't a Christian, that they would just very clearly understand that, that in Jesus Christ is found 
our only hope. All of the things that I've talked about today are found only in Jesus Christ, that we can't go around Him, neither would we want to go around Him, because knowing Jesus Christ is the most fulfillment that any person could ever have in their life. Lord, speak to some heart today. Draw Christians close to you. And Lord, may we have a good time of fellowship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.